This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. That's Georgia Hartstark. That's Karen Kilgariff. And here we go again for and another week of true crime reportage. Ooh, we're reporters. I, that really could mean anything. I <laughs> just was kind of the first thing that popped into my head. I mean, it could you could stick anything on that definition right there. <laughs> you know, I'm actually going to look it up right now, make sure <laughs> that it doesn't mean anything bad. <laughs> <laughs> reportage. And this is Definition. what we guarantee to you. Oh, the reporting of news for the press and the broadcast media. Reporters. Like um, us. No, it's the action of reporting. Oh, okay. Well, it's a verb. You were it's a noun. It's a noun. But it's the reporting of news. I guess that's the trans. The translation makes it a noun, even though it sounds like a verb. Well, then you were exactly right. Boom. Name a network after it. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Uh, yeah. Uh, we had our uh, exactly right Halloween party this weekend. That's right. We had uh, all our hosts and all our incredible employees and like 99% dressed up. And that was so much fun seeing a bunch of people, you know, who dress- didn't dress up. I'm not naming names. It's you rarely go to a Halloween party where almost everyone is dressed up. Oh my god! So and I was like, really impressed. Totally, I'm like, well done too. And fucking Nick Terry and Nick Terry and his wife were there, which is so exciting. They flew, flew all the in. way in. Oh my flew god! In. Yeah, make sure As you did watch your researcher. Your my researcher, researcher flew in from Kansas. Haley Gray flew in. I mean, and, and she turned in her research the night before, which I was really impressed with. She did her homework and then she understood the assignment of the Halloween party, which was she was wearing the uh, Frank What's His Name costume from It's Only Sunny in Philadelphia. And it was pretty spectacular. Amazing. So yeah. good. All around. Yeah. Very I, cool. I'm proud of our network. You know? The fly-ins were, I just, it's an effort that I, I can't make that effort when I'm in the same town as the party. Oh. And there were people who were like, had to come to your Halloween party. It was yeah. Beautiful. And I think we delivered. I think we did a good job. I think that uh, Exactly Right is a network full of witches. And so if we hadn't brought a strong a Halloween party, there was a tarot card reader. We we brought it. So thanks to everybody who came and uh, ma- really made it something special. You know, maybe in a couple of years, we get enough practice under our belt and we go public. Public, and it's just, public Halloween party? Public Halloween party. <laughs> Five dollars at the door. You have to get the stamp on your inner right wrist. Yeah, you get a solo cup, one solo cup. Yep. Then that's yours for the night for the kegs. 
and just please leave by 930. <laughs> that was the funniest part is I can't remember who I think I was saying it to our producer, Hannah Crichton, which was this is our basically my first like party party out of quarantine oh, yeah. or wherever we are right now, which is neither in or out of quarantine. <laughs> right. And I was like, I can't, I got there and wanted to leave a, about an hour later where I was like, we shouldn't be expected to stay very long at parties no. right, right yeah. now. It's so early. Yeah. No one's ready socially to like go till two in the morning. Right. right? No, not at all. Yeah. No, I'm a get there early, leave early person for sure. And a lot of people, it was funny because everyone equally had the same exact type of social anxiety. Mm-hmm. So it was almost like everyone was kind of free. Yes. To not worry about it. I think here's a thought, because having the costumes made something, you gave you something to talk about with other people. So maybe every party from now until the quarantine is officially over should be a fucking costume party. No matter what. <laughs> or at least just a full mask, full wig. Party. Yeah. 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 A, a what are you dressed as party? Yeah. And just you have to, to make it up. It's an icebreaker. You can also feel a little separate from your own, whatever you think your own identity might be. Just do yeah. a different walk in someone else's shoes for the evening and then go home. Yeah. Um, Karen, uh, my heart is so sad for you and the sweetest pup I've known for a long time. And I'm so sorry about George's passing. Well, thank you. Um, You know, it's people have been so lovely on social media. Of course, our listeners are such animal people. um, And so thank you to everybody who has been sending me lovely messages. I didn't expect to get so many. I just kind of wanted to put it up all at once so that it wouldn't have to be like a staggered message. Um, And of course, George was fiercely private. So it's not Mm -hmm. like a lot of people knew who she was. Um, uh, But yeah, she was a 15 year old dog that had basically full body cancer. So she was on a clock. From when she, you know, got her leg amputated last Christmas. So we kind of made the most of her life from that point on. And, yeah. um, yeah, it came, it was a little sudden because I had a whole plan, which of course you do when you're a pet <laughs> right. owner. Um, so it was, it was a, it came sooner than I wanted. But then, of course, in the end, it was like she needed it. She was ready to go and it had to happen. Yeah. And then it was really beautiful. It was like, I, luckily I got to do it. Someone came to my house so she didn't have to go back to the vet. Mm-hmm. And it was a really, she, she finally was out of pain because she had been in pain for a long time. Yeah. So for all as awful as it is to have a dog die, which everyone knows it's truly the worst. Um, it was best case scenario. So. Yeah. Um, thanks everybody. Just there, people have been so lovely and so supportive and so verbal with their outreach. It's, it's a really nice thing to have that many friends. I don't actually know I have. Yeah. I, I, it was a beautiful thing when Elvis passed to get so many people reach out and realize that like, yeah, that everyone understands what it's like to have a pet pass and how heartbreaking it is and to make it feel like you're not just crazy or, you know, it's a family member. And George was, I can attest to what a sweet angel she was. And I love, I love seeing her. And she had an incredible life. You gave her a, a beautiful life. And so 
So she's, you guys are lucky to have had each other. Yeah. Yeah. So it'll be a little depressing for me for a while, but, um, you know, we'll power through it. Yeah. Uh, we'll do a quick, exactly right update for you. Oh, well, first of all, I hope you guys are listening to the Celebrity Hometowns. It's our new third episode of the week where we have our celebrity friends tell us their hometowns, whatever that may be. And this week is Michelle Buteau, who is so freaking hilarious and wonderful and has a really awesome, um, interesting story to tell. So please check out that third episode of My Favorite Murder. Celebrity Hometowns edition. Celebrity Hometowns. Yeah, you can't be, you really can't beat Michelle Buteau. Um, she's just, she's everyone's favorite person. You might know her from The Circle. You might know her from her stand-up specials. You might know her from, she's basically the sassy best friend on every TV show <laughs> you've ever seen. Um, and she is our guest this week for Celebrity Hometown. So we're really excited for that. That was a very fun uh, episode that we were felt like we recorded it in seven minutes. It went yeah. by so fast. And then uh, let's see over on the Exactly Right Network, just a couple things to mention to you. Murder Squad is covering the unsolved Cleveland torso murders from the 30s. Always yeah. um, a fascinating uh case that they're going to get into dig into with all their forensic technical specialties should we tell everyone what um what billy and paul were for halloween at the halloween party they were what were they they were jurassic Stephen, what were the names from jurassic park uh jeff goldblum billy was jeff goldblum's character ian malcolm and uh paul was alan grant samuel's character it was like yeah. the perfect they got all the details right it was brilliant <laughs> it was so perfect should we tell them what we were, Karen? Sure. You were Megan Fox, um, and Vince and I were Margot and Richie Tenenbaum. You were Megan Fox, and then um, Frank came along, and Frank was Machine Gun Kelly. It was dead on. It was. It was uncanny. Oh, and this this week on Waiting for Impact, uh, a Dave Holmes passion project, I think everyone's going to want to tune in because it's episode four and Joey McIntyre makes an appearance. Um, it's an interview for the ages. So you're going to want to listen to that. He talks all about what it was like to be a baby pop star in the early 90s. So amazing. Uh, and Dave Holmes was the mayor of Easttown as someone who had never seen the mayor of Easttown. So he just made up what he assumed Kate Winslet was wearing and it was dead on and hilarious and i really i love costumes like that or it's like it's this but it's this yeah like how bridger no, was good. bridger was a woman having a horrible time on her vacation that's just yeah. <laughs> such a great costume yeah cool and then oh we have beanies if you want a beanie for the, for the winter in the in the my favorite murder shop go get a beanie if you want it's time. It is the season. It's freezing in Los Angeles right now. It is like 70, 69 degrees. <laughs> Beanie weather <laughs> for right. sure. Um, all right. Well, let's start this thing. Sure. Let's do it. Georgia, have you ever been blown away by the most simple dish at a restaurant? Like perfectly scrambled eggs? Oh my God. Yes, Karen. And then all I want to do is make that dish at home and eat it every day. Well, you probably could as long as you have the chef's secret ingredient 
Made In Cookware. Made In was created to bring restaurant quality performance kitchenware to home chefs around the world. For years, they've built their business by supplying restaurants and top chefs with high-end cookware. Some of Tom Colicchio's most treasured dishes at his restaurant craft are made in Made In. Whether you're cooking for professional critics or just the critics you live with, your meals will benefit from the quality of Made In products. Like their carbon steel cookware, it combines the best of both cast iron and stainless steel clad, so it's rugged enough for grills or an open flame. It's the MVP of summer cookouts and cook-ins. What I really love about made-in cookware is that it actually makes something like having a Memorial Day barbecue much more convenient because you can keep everything on the grill if you need to throw, say, a pan of garlic up on the top while you're grilling your steaks on the bottom. It's strong enough, durable enough to do that. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes have in common. They're all made in, made in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from May 18th through May 27th when you visit madeincookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com. Goodbye. There's something about the sound of an old-timey cash register that really takes me back. I know. It sounds like someone is about to hand me an ice cream cone, but it also sounds like we just sold some merch. That's right. And if you're a Shopify user like us, you know that this sound means you just made a sale. Shopify has helped millions of businesses sell their products online, but did you know they also offer the same support for brick and mortar stores? From accepting payments to managing inventory, they have everything you need to sell in person. So give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify POS tracks sales across all your locations. That way you'll always know what you have in stock and where. They also provide reliable tech that fits your unique retail needs, like turning a tablet into a credit card reader. And if you're looking to reach new customers, check out Shopify's marketing tools. They're easy to use and they integrate with all social media platforms. With Shopify, we have a powerful partner for managing our sales. And if you're a business owner, you can too. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period today at shopify.com murder. And here's the important note, that promo code is all lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash murder and take your retail business to the next level. That's shopify.com slash murder. Again, don't forget the code is all lowercase. Goodbye. I'm going to go first this week and um, I will be covering the horrible story of the British serial killer, Dennis Nielsen. Ooh. Yeah. I kind of can't believe we haven't done this before. I'm surprised, especially yeah. over when we were overseas, although it's a rough one to do live. It is. Well, yeah, it's really dark. It's It very much reminds me. It goes right along with John Wayne Gacy murders, with Dahmer, where he's He's preying on a, a cross-section of people that he knows. Mm. He thinks in his mind people won't miss or right. people, you know, they won't prosecute uh, the crimes if they're found, if they go missing. No one will look into it. Right. It's really, really dark. So let's get right into it. It goes right along with our theme. The sources for this are an unbelievably well-researched Wikipedia page of Dennis Nielsen. Also, the Murderpedia page, which has tons of victim information, pictures, all the kind of collected info that you might want about all those men that were murdered. There's also a BBC article with no byline about him. Then there's 
uh, Esquire article by Lauren Crank, K-R-A-N-C, um, the true story of British serial killer Dennis Nielsen. Um, there is an Evening Standard article with no byline. Serial killer Dennis Nielsen confesses to first murder. Okay. So on the evening of February 8th, 1983, a plumber named Michael Catron of an emergency drainage and plumbing company called Dino Rod, which is basically the British Roto-Rooter, mm-hmm. um, responds to a call at 23 Cranley Gardens in the Muswell Hill district of North London. So four days earlier, the tenants of this building, it's a three-story building, um, and they had sent a letter to the property manager complaining about blocked drainage pipes and saying that the, the whole situation with the blocked pipes had become intolerable. So this plumber, Michael Catron, checks out a drain cover on the side of the building. When he pulls it up, he is very alarmed to find a quote-unquote flesh-like substance and a few small bones inside. So he calls his supervisor, a man named Gary Wheeler, and they agree that since it's late at night, Michael should leave, and then the two will go back and take a closer look the next morning. But before he leaves, two tenants from the building join Michael at the the drainage cover and look at the drain pipe with him and he tells them he thinks it might be human flesh and one of the men says it looks to me like someone's been flushing down their kentucky fried chicken the tenant that makes this observation is a man named dennis nielsen so when the two plumbers come back the next morning at 7 30 in the morning they find the bulk of the fleshy substance is now gone Mm-mm. So Katrin looks deeper into one of the connecting pipes and he finds traces of that substance um, and some small bones because Katrin and Wheeler think the bones could have come from a human hand. And that along that along with the fact that the fleshy substance was removed in the night are enough for them to call the police. Mm -hmm. So when the police arrive, they collect everything that's left in the drain pipe and they send it for examination and at the mortuary, the pathologist David Bowen confirms these are indeed human remains. He even finds a piece of flesh from a human neck with mm. obvious ligature marks on it. So they know that someone has been strangled. So the police ask plumber Michael Catron to trace this clogged pipe to the par- apartment of origin. And they find out that basically doing the math of one of the apartments empty, it's not a very big building. It's pretty small. So it must be from the building's top floor unit. And that's the unit belonging to Dennis Nielsen. So the chief detective chief inspector, Peter J and two fellow officers just stay there and wait for Dennis to return home from work. They just sit out in front of the apartment and wait (laughs) for him to get back. And so that night, When he does walk up, they question him about the drain blockage. He gets kind of cagey. He asks why police are so interested in the drains. And um, Jay explains that they're all police officers and they'd like to go up to Dennis's apartment with him. And without much choice, Dennis leads them upstairs. And the moment they walk into the apartment, they smell rotting flesh. So DCIJ turns to Dennis and says the... Substance in the drain pipe has been confirmed to be human remains. Dennis acts surprised, saying, good grief, how awful. But Jay immediately doesn't buy it. He just immediately says, where's the rest of the body? And Dennis Nielsen drops the act and points over to the wardrobe and says, they're in there. So the officers open this wardrobe in a, in a second room 
and the rotting flesh smell immediately grows stronger. Inside the wardrobe, there are two plastic bags, both filled with human remains. They ask Dennis if there's any other bodies that they should be aware of, and Dennis tells them, it's a long story. It goes back a long time. I'll tell you everything. I want to get it off my chest, but not here at the police station. So the officers cuff Dennis. They read him his rights. They escort him out to their patrol car. And once they're inside, an officer asks Nielsen if the remains they found are from one or two victims. And he replies, 15 or 16 from 1978. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. So I'll tell you just a a little bit about his early life. Dennis Nielsen's born on October 23rd, 1945. The middle child of three, his dad, Olaf Mokshim, Moves to Scotland in 1940 as a member of the Free Norwegian Forces after Germany occupies Norway. Mm-hmm. Olaf and his fiancée, Elizabeth, marry 1942. And then they start having kids and they raise them in Elizabeth's parents' home. And at some point, Olaf changes his last name to Nielsen. So this marriage is tumultuous from the start. Olaf's rarely there. When he does, he barely pays attention to his wife and kids. So the two get divorced in 1948. And Dennis's maternal grandparents help raise him and his siblings. Dennis is said to be a quiet child whose early childhood consists of family picnics and walks through the countryside with his grandfather. So it's weird because in some instances, Dennis recalls being very close to his grandfather, calling him, quote, a great hero and a protector. But other times, Dennis describes a darkly stoic religious man, and he also claims that he was sexually abused by his grandfather. So he kind of is all over the map about him. Uh So in 1951, Dennis's grandfather dies of a heart attack at 62 years old. He says he's deeply affected by his grandfather's death. And then in 1955, his mom moves out of uh, her parents' house and into the family's own flat. She starts dating a new man. And they move to Stryken, Scotland, and the couple proceed to have four kids in four years. So when Dennis hits puberty, he realizes he's gay. He's too ashamed to act on it. But he's also ashamed of his family's home and his low economic status. So he doesn't have a lot of friends. He doesn't invite friends over. He wants to be a soldier in the British Army. And so in 1961, he drops out of school when he's 16 years old and he enlists and he begins training to be a chef with the Army Catering Corps. And his first assignments in West Germany in 1964. And he would later refer to that as the happiest time of his life. But his sexual urges are creating trouble for him. He's still very much in the closet. He showers separately from the rest of the men because he's afraid he's going to get an erection. He drinks um, to excess, basically, to combat both his shyness and his loneliness. Mm -hmm. And so he has a really strange near-death experience. When he's in the army, he gets kidnapped by a taxi driver who knocks him unconscious before stuffing him into the trunk of his cab. Oh, my God. But when the driver goes to pull Dennis back out, he's now conscious and he grabs a tire jack and beats the driver with it and then stuffs him into the trunk of the cab. So Dennis spends 11 years as a caterer in the British Army. He leaves the service in 1972, moves back in with his mom and stepdad while he figures out what he's trying to do with his life. And his mom, of course, is much less concerned about him finding a career and much more concerned about him finding a wife. So... One night he goes to the movies with his brother, his sister-in-law, and two friends, and it turns out to be a documentary about gay men. So when they walk home afterwards, the group expresses disgust with homosexuality, and Dennis defends it, 
So his brother calls, says that he's gay and even outs him to his, to their mother. Oh no. So basically from that point on, Dennis stops talking to his brother completely. He has little to no contact with the rest of his family and he moves out of his mother's house two months later and he gets an apartment in London and he applies to join the Metropolitan Police. So he, com- he completes his training in April of 1973 and he likes the job, but he does not like his coworkers mostly because of the rampant homophobia, which right. you can imagine was pretty horrible in the 70s in the London Police Department. Mm-hmm. So he drinks by himself after work and he goes to gay pubs alone. He's depressed and dissatisfied with his personal and his professional life. And he ends up leaving the Metropolitan Police, having worked less uh, than a year on the force. Um, then he eventually finds himself work as a civil servant in 1974, um, basically at a, at a job placement service. So this is, it's the seventies in London. So it's really hard time. You know, it's, it's, there's a lot of poverty. There's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of whatever. <laughs> uh, it's not a good time. Every, there's a lot of unemployment. There's a lot of poverty. It's a yeah. pretty dark time. So in no- November of 1975, Dennis meets 20 year old David Galachan, and they end up actually becoming a couple. They move into a flat together at 195 Melrose Avenue. And Dennis actually ends up negotiating their lease so they get exclusive private use of the backyard. But soon the two men start to have terrible arguments. They're never physically violent with each other, but Dennis is particularly cruel and verbally abusive. He ends up kicking David out. And by 1978, he's alone again. And that's the year his murderous rampage begins. Uh So basically, we're back to 1983. After Dennis is taken into custody, he sits down with authorities two days later to tell them where the remains of the three victims are hidden. So officers search his attic apartment at the Cranley Gardens. And just like Dennis described, they find human remains in the like all over the house. So in the drawer in the bathroom, there's a drawer that's like flipped over. And inside that they find the lower half of a torso and two legs. Mm-hmm. There's a tea chest where they find another section of torso, a skull and some miscellaneous bones. Oh so God. there's just body parts all over this apartment. So he didn't even try to get get rid of the bodies. He just fucking kept them like. Well, he couldn't. So in right. the other in the first apartment, he lived at on Melrose um, at Melrose Avenue. Mm. He had a backyard. Right. So I'll explain it to you. But he had a whole system at his other apartment. Okay. And then he was forced to move. Ugh. So in this apartment, he didn't there was nowhere for him to put the bodies. Oh, my God. So essentially, here's here's how it went. Okay. Each victim had been strangled to death. But. As he's trying to explain it to the police, he can only remember the full name of one victim, 20-year-old Stephen Sinclair. He calls another victim John the Guardsman, and the third he can't remember the name at all. So Dennis confesses to 12 more murders dating back to December of 1978. At the time, he can't remember exactly how many people he's killed, but the final count of confirmed victims would later be determined to be 15. So most of the murders took place at the 195 Melrose Avenue apartment Mm -hmm. because there was a private yard. He basically he took the the bodies out after storing them under the floorboards for sometimes months at a time. And then he would burn them in the backyard with a tire on them to cover up the smell. That's impossible. Like 
that nobody would have been tipped off to that smell. Either the, the keeping them in the apartment or the burning. Well, in the Melrose Avenue apartment, he had the ground floor. Yeah. So he was putting bodies that he would basically wrap up uh-huh. and then he would wrap them up and put them under the floorboards. Oh. So I guess it worked because yeah. he didn't get caught for a really long time. Yeah. Wow. So basically he ends up taking the police back to the Melrose Avenue apartment so he can point out these burn sites in the backyard so that the police can later go over them for further investigation Mm -hmm. and for to see if they can find any remains. So that plumber, Michael Catran, Mm -hmm. he leaks the story about human remains being found in the drain pipe to the Daily Mirror the same day that Dennis confesses um, the 10th. So the Daily Mirror rushes to print the stories and basically that then it's on because it's the tabloid media frenzy, of course. It's a huge story, too, like the 15 people. And then it's gory, too. It's it's everything that that those kinds of stories are looking for, where it's like, Mm. this is how they found it. What has been going on in here? So back in the interrogation room, investigators listen intently as Dennis describes these gruesome killings and what he did with the bodies afterwards in great detail. Mm. So over the next few days, they gather more than 30 hours of information from Dennis. And when they ask him why he brutally murdered so many innocent boys and men, he flatly replies, I was hoping you would tell me that. (gasps) So Dennis um, meets his first victim on December 29th, 1978. He spent the evening drinking alone at his apartment on Melrose Avenue, but he decides to then go to the local Cricklewood Arms pub. But outside, he bumps into a 14-year-old named Stephen Holmes, who'd just been denied service for being underage. So Dennis invites the boy back to his apartment, saying they can drink and listen to music there. So Stephen agrees, follows Dennis home to his ground floor apartment. They spend the night drinking and listening to music, and then they pass out together in Dennis's bed. And the next morning, Dennis realizes that Stephen will leave once he wakes up. So he decides that he's going to make the boy, quote, stay with him over the new year, whether he wants to or not. He grabs a necktie, straddles Stephen's body and strangles him with it. Stephen wakes up and tries to fight, but it's no use. When he loses consciousness, Dennis fills a bucket with water and drowns him in it. So that's how he actually dies. Oh, God. He then takes, and this is, I'll just say this this time, because this is basically what he does to all the victims. He takes off Stephen's clothes, bathes the dead body, puts the body back on the bed, and then basically kind of spends time caressing it and staring at it and masturbating next to it. He claims that he never had sex with any of these bodies, but he basically did everything but that. Then he wraps the body in plastic and hides it under the floorboards, where it remains for about seven and a half months. Holy shit. Then Dennis takes it out into the backyard and burns it with a tire. So, Mm. and you're right. I mean, that part of it is so horrifying where it's like, as the neighbor's, wouldn't you complain even if someone was burning a tire in the backyard? Right. Aside well, not, from yeah. looking into it, it's like that's the worst smell. Yeah. Except for the smell that tire is trying to cover. Yeah. And like you would think like one person would know what the smell of like decay is. Like there's got to be one person on the block who's like, I know what that is. But I guess in working class London in the 70s, everyone mind their own fucking business. Right. 
minding their own business. And then I think whatever he was doing to cover the smell in his apartment was working. Mm -hmm. But the fire, a tire is the worst smell ever. It covers everything. And you're just attributing all the bad, the whole bad situation to that. This dipshit's burning a tire. (laughs) Okay. So his next victim is also the first known survivor of these attacks. Yeah. He's a college student from Hong Kong. um, And he meets Dennis on October 11th, 1979 in a pub on St. Martin's Lane. Dennis convinces him to go back to his flat for casual sex, um, including like a little, you know, light bondage essentially was kind of in the agreement Mm -hmm. but things quickly take a turn when dennis wraps a tie around his neck and tells him that he's now he now wants to play a quote dangerous game but this student is older and stronger than dennis's last last victim and he is actually able to fight dennis off and escape and then he goes and reports the incident to police but he never ends up pressing charges oh no which we can probably pretty safely assume was had to, a lot to do with the, re- right. the reception he got when he tried to file that report. Totally. So a few months later, on December 3rd, 1979, Dennis meets 23-year-old Kenneth Ockenden at a West End pub. Kenneth is a student from Canada in town to visit family. So Dennis offers to take him on a tour of some London landmarks. Um, so Kenneth accepts. And then afterwards, the two go back to Dennis's apartment where they have some drinks and listen to music. So Kenneth is wearing a set of headphones. And while he's listening, Dennis takes the cord from the headphones and strangles Mm. Kenneth with it. Mm. And when he's dead, Dennis puts the headphones on himself, pours himself another glass of rum and spends some time listening to music. Oh, my dead body. God. He then bathes, does the whole M.O. with Kenneth's body. Mm -hmm. And then the next day he buys a camera and takes photos of the body, um, set in suggestive positions and then he hides the body underneath the floorboards over the next five months dennis spends time this is really awful and upsetting Mm -hmm. he takes the body out from its hiding place and puts it in a chair (gasps) according to his own report he watches tv with it and talks to it and pretends that it's a real person there wow yeah super super awful this is the reason that we did never did yep. the story before. That's the one. Yeah. But like, yeah. Yeah. So on May 17th, because it's just, it's also unimaginable anyway, if it was just simply a murder and then the body was taken somewhere else. But there's just this, these layers of depravity that are just, they're like almost hard to say. Yeah. Because it's, it's just so gross. It's very Dahmer-esque. Yeah. Yeah. So on May 17th, 1980... Dennis kills his third victim, a 16-year-old boy named Martin Duffy. Martin was a runaway from Northwest England, and he hitchhiked into London and ended up sleeping on the streets, which apparently a lot of people did at this time. They would see London on TV, and they would figure that this was the place for them and that they would get there. There were no jobs. You know, the the unemployment's rampant. Everybody is. It's just a much more intense, difficult city to live in than they expect it to be. Right. So when he meets Dennis, he off uh, Dennis offers him a meal and a bed to sleep in. And of course, Martin accepts. But once he falls asleep, Dennis strangles and then drowns him. 
He follows the same disturbing ritual established with the previous victims and then leaves the boy's body to decompose underneath the floorboards. Three months later, Dennis meets 27-year-old sex worker William Billy Sutherland and lures him to his apartment and murders him in the same way as all the other victims. Mm -hmm. Um, Later that month, Dennis brings home a man named Douglas Stewart. So the two party together at the apartment and Stewart falls asleep in Dennis's living room chair. When he wakes up, he sees that Dennis has tied his feet together and is wrapping something around his neck Mm -hmm. in an attempt to strangle him. So Stewart fights back, manages to escape, and then reports the incident to police. But when police discover that Stewart willingly went to Dennis's flat and that the two had been drinking, they figure both men had a consensual gay encounter and that they're now trying to cover it up. Stewart never follows up with police again. And Dennis, again, is not charged mm. or even investigated. Totally. In the year of 1980, he kills five men. Jesus. And only one of these victims to be is ever positively identified as Billy Sutherland. Wow. The the other four, are they can't positively be identified. <gasps> At the end of the year, Dennis removes the bodies he's got hidden beneath his floor. He dissects and dismembers them. So he essentially takes like any of kind of the soft parts of the body. He, get, he gets it down to the parts that just need to be burned. Yeah. Um, and it's really gruesome how he does that and the fact that he even does that. And he'll later tell police that he would just get blackout drunk to do it. Um, but st- but still, it's That's... not. It's just unimaginable. Yeah. He builds another bonfire in the backyard and burns all these remains oh again with a tire God. to mask the smell. This time when the fire dies out, he uses a rake to spread the ashes in the grass and he sifts through it all looking for bones or anything that might give him away. Um, at this point, he finds a skull and he ends up like smashing it with a rake to spread across the yard uh. with the rest of the ashes. So he's it's pretty blatant what he's doing. Um, and no one no one's catching on. The last victim Dennis kills at his Melrose Avenue apartment is 24-year-old Malcolm Barlow. So on September 17th, 1981, Dennis finds Barlow, who's an orphan who's been struggling with mental illness and epilepsy, Mm. um, finds him slumped against the side of a building near Dennis's home. Barlow explains to Dennis that the medication he takes for his epilepsy causes muscular weakness and can sometimes affect his ability to walk. Dennis calls him an ambulance and he's taken to the hospital. Um, the next day, Barlow shows up to, at Dennis's to thank him for doing that. So Dennis invites him inside and they share a meal. Afterwards, Barlow falls asleep on Dennis's couch. Dennis strangles him and the next day hides his body under the kitchen sink. So shortly after the murder of Malcolm Barlow, Dennis's landlord informs him that he'll be renovating the building and that Dennis has to move out. Mm -hmm. So now he's forced to dismember the remaining five bodies that are (sighs) hidden around his flat and have one last bonfire to destroy those remains. Jesus. Along with, of course, attire. (laughs) Um, So then he moves into the attic unit 23D at Cranley Gardens on October 5th, 1981. So, as I said, in this attic apartment, he can't stash bodies under floorboards. His neighbors below would, of course, notice the stench. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't have access to a private yard where he could burn bodies. So he can't he he knows he can't 
murder anyone for a little while, but he does continue to inflict violence on several young men. A 19-year-old student named Paul Nobbs wakes up in Dennis's flat with a red mark on his neck and bloodshot eyes. He goes to the doctor who tells him that he has clearly been strangled by someone who decided not to finish the job. Mm. Nobbs, who knows it was clearly Dennis Nielsen, either never reports it or he never follows up on the report he makes to the police. Then in March of 1982, Dennis bumps into a man he previously met at a pub named John Howlett. Dennis only initially knows this as this man as John the Guardsman. Um, they spend time alone together at Dennis's apartment. But when Dennis tries to attack him, 23-year-old John fights back. And just as it seems that John is winning the fight, Dennis finds a strap of loose upholstery from one of his chairs and is able to strangle John until he's unconscious. Mm. And then he drowns him in the bathroom. So now Dennis is forced to dismember John's body immediately. He wraps the body parts in crepe bandages and stuffs them in plastic bags and hides them in the cupboard, the tea chest, and the bathroom drawer. This part is truly horrible. He also boils the heads, hands, and feet to remove the flesh and separate the bones. Mm. And any smaller bones or flesh that he can't destroy, he flushes down the toilet. Oh, my God. So... Dennis Nielsen claims his last, last victim, 20-year-old Stephen Sinclair, on January 26, 1983. Um, Sinclair has been struggling with a drug addiction for years. He's last seen by his friends stumbling toward the tube on his way home. So at some point on that route, uh, Dennis Nielsen swoops in and gets the boy to come back to his flat. While Sinclair sits stoned and drunk in the living room, Dennis approaches him with a necktie saying, Oh, Stephen, here I go again. <gasps> he strangles Stephen Sinclair, bathes his body, lays it on the bed. The whole He does the whole same ritual that he does with all the rest, mm -hmm. then dismembers him, tries flushing some of the remains. But because he's already done this with two victims, the pipes are now backed up. <sighs> so the tenants must have smelled something because... Yeah. The clogged pipes, I think they're interpreting the smell they're smelling as having to do with the clogged pipes. Right. Which it does, but not in the way that they think. Right. So they end up getting together and writing a letter that Dennis himself signs <gasps> to the landlord saying, you have to take care of this problem immediately. Oh, my God. And so that's what brings that plumber around yeah. to check the drain pipe. So police are only able to identify and name eight of Nielsen's victims although there are 15 total. And the identified victims are Stephen Holmes, age 14, Graham Allen, age 27, Malcolm Barlow, age 23, Martin Duffy, age 16, John Howlett, age 23, Kenneth Ockenden, age 23, William Sutherland, age 26, and Stephen Sinclair, age 20. The police are only able to recover 11 of the bodies. So English law states that police have 48 hours from the time of a suspect's arrest to charge them with a crime or they have to be released. So forensics quickly take the remains found at Cranley Gardens. They run the fingerprints they can find mm -hmm. through the database and they get a match confirming Stephen Sinclair's identity. And this allows police to formally charge Dennis Nielsen with the murder of Stephen Sinclair on February 11th, 1983. So Dennis Nielsen is sent to Brixton prison to await his trial, but he begins to make trouble the moment he gets there. Now, 
uh, there's an amazing three-part ITV series called Des, starring David Tennant, that will tell you the story of this, basically from from the the DCI's point of view, mm. basically how how it unfolded for them. But it's a kind of about what this guy Dennis Nelson was like to talk to and interact with, and the the mind-blowing part is the part where he just says the bodies are in there. I did it. He actually he ends up firing his uh, like appointed attorney uh-huh. because he's trying to confess and the attorney keeps saying, I recommend, I caution you not to answer that. And he finally, he's like, I need you to get out of here. I'm trying to, I'm trying to confess. It's almost like he doesn't have any conscience about, or like any consciousness about how, what a horrible thing he's done. He's just casually like immediately not trying to deny it. Immediately. I'll tell you everything. It sounds like yes. from a couple of things he did, he like, has been like waiting to get caught and like wa- waiting for someone to stop him. For sure. I mean, I think that he says that himself to the police that he wanted to stop doing it, mm-hmm. but he also is um, described as a malignant narcissist and oh. narcissists have no consciousness right. about how they seem to other people. Right. They, they don't get it at all. So his narcissism really shows in that way where he's talking about like, I'm doing the right thing. I'm look, I'm trying to confess. He gets right. rid of his lawyer because in his, in his mind, everything, he rationalizes everything. He minimizes everything he does. Yeah. Everything is just, Oh, look, I had to do it. I knew they weren't going to stay. It's all his, his point of view of I had no choice I had no choice yeah. as opposed to you're a rampaging serial killer yeah like he does not see it that way at all it's very clean and clear and and almost like he really is the victim here and totally. he just wants his story told totally. it's pretty mind-blowing and David Tennant this <laughs> as this guy is it's bone chilling and it's really really well acted it's a it's a really good series what's it if called you again seen it Des. Des. Okay. Yeah, it's great. And if you're going to watch, there's another, because this guy, of course, once he was in prison for a long time, started recording tapes of himself. Oh, no. So there's another streaming service that has the Dennis Nielsen tapes. And before you go listen to that, which is Dennis Nielsen's version of himself, mm-hmm. you have to watch Des because that's like the reality version of right. the delusion this man was living in yeah. and how justified he kind of was yeah it's it's very disturbing so once he gets to prison like he starts making trouble like he's he tells everyone he's really offended that he's supposed to be innocent until proven guilty and yet he's being forced to wear the clothes of a guilty man of a prisoner and he tries to say that he's going to be go naked instead of wearing prison clothes like he was he's doing a bunch of shit like that yeah um he actually basically the him saying he's going to be naked in protest, the guards say, fine, then we're just not going to let you leave your cell. Um, so then he throws a, basically a chamber pot type of thing that's in his uh. in his cell. He throws it and it hits several guards. Um, oh, the no. contents hit several guards, <gasps> which land him in solitary confinement for 56 days. So holy shit. Yeah, they're not fucking around with this narcissist. So. <laughs> 
As the pretrial investigation continues, authorities are able to add five more murder charges and two attempted murder charges onto this case. He agrees to plead guilty to all these charges, but then he changes his mind once more before trial, hires a new attorney, and changes his plea to not guilty by reason of diminished responsibility, which is the British version of not guilty by reason of insanity. Mm-hmm. Um, so the trial begins on October 24th, 1983. Um, but the overwhelming evidence of Dennis's guilt is damning. Yeah. So the defense doesn't argue whether or not he's, he committed these murders. They argue whether or not he was of sound mind when he did it. Several survivors end up taking the stand to basically tell their side of the story and explain the ways in which he was of sound mind when he attacked them. One of those survivors, Douglas Stewart, the man who awoke in Dennis's apartment with his feet tied, he tells the court that after he overpowered Nielsen, that Nielsen screamed out, take my money, take my money. And -hmm. Douglas believes that this was Dennis's cover in case neighbors overheard them fighting and called the cops. That way, Dennis would be the victim (gasps) and Douglas would be the attacker. Oh, that's sound mine, motherfucker. That's, yep, that's sound mine. Uh, DCI Peter J also testifies describing how calm and matter of fact Dennis was when he was questioned about the bodies in his Cranley apartment, how he hid the bodies, he hid the details of the body's composition, so on. Clearly, there was planning, there was forethought, there was, mm-hmm. he wasn't out of his mind. Uh, the defense calls two different psychiatrists who've evaluated Dennis Nielsen. They argue that he suffers from a number of mental and emotional disorders. One psychiatrist believes Dennis suffers from an unspecified personality disorder. The other believes he suffers from schizoid attacks. But a third psychiatrist called by the prosecution argues that one of Dennis's many troubling characteristics is his ability to manipulate others. This doctor claims that Nielsen is capable of forming relationships, but that he chooses to objectify his victims to the point where he makes them his own sexual props. On November 4th, 1983, after just one day of deliberation, the jury finds Dennis Nielsen guilty of all six counts of murder and both counts of attempted murder, and he's sentenced to life in prison. He makes no appeal attempts during this imprisonment. He fully agrees with the court's decision. Um, and he also never expresses any remorse for his crimes. He's designated a category A prisoner, meaning that he can have his own room and roam freely with the other inmates. In December of 1983, another inmate cuts Dennis on the face and chest with a razor blade in a fight. He gets 89 stitches, but he survives those injuries. Mm. And then in 2018, Dennis reports having terrible pain and he's taken to York Hospital. The doctors discover he has an abdominal aortic aneurysm, which is essentially, you know, the aorta is the valve that goes up the middle of your body to Mm -hmm. your heart. And basically right below your rib cage, it just like it basically looks like it puffs out. I looked this up because I'm like, how do you have an abdominal aortal thing? But I didn't realize the aorta goes all the way through. Supposed to be insanely painful. He has emergency surgery that he survives. But a couple days later, he dies of a blood clot and he's 72 years old. And mercifully, that is the end of the horrible story of serial killer, necrophile, and all around creepy bastard, Dennis Nielsen. Wow. 
If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines, and June's Journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s, like lavish estates and gardens, and don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but watch out, you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Goodbye. Wow, that's uh, that's so heavy. Uh I'm glad you covered that though. And um yeah, wild dude. Just horrifying. It's yeah. like one of those ones you want to take a shower after. It's so <laughs> it's just it's so awful. Yeah. Um, well don't worry, I've got an awful one for you today, too. Oh, perfect. Like an awful palate cleanser of more uh, awful. Yeah, more awful right. on awful on top of awful. Perfect. Um, and this one actually takes place in london and in england as well and there's an involved london and england that's yep. crazy yep in both of those <laughs> what a coincidence and involves the met the london metropolitan police so look at us go boom boom all right so today i'm going to talk about uh the renowned english detective jack witcher who's known as the Prince of Detectives and the case that completely changed his life, the Roadhill House murder. Um, the sources I use today are History by the Yard, a Guardian article written by Kate Summerscale, a Medium article by Chloe Wells, the Dark Histories podcast by Ben Cutmore, and a Guardian article by Ian Rankin, and of course, our friend Wikipedia as well. So, Karen, let's start in August of 1842. And this is when the London Metropolitan Police creates the very first detective force in the English-speaking world, uh, which is headquartered at Scotland Yard. Before there were detectives, this is the first time there's ever like actual detecting detectives. Before this, crimes were investigated by regular old police or the bobbies, uh, with the, and with this new branch of detectives, crimes will be investigated by a group of what starts as eight men who are completely different from their predecessors. These men, it said, um, will make sense of a crime like no one else. And they're plain clothes. So they're not these like forceful, you know, dudes with nightsticks and stuff. They're like, um, kind of undercover in a way. Uh, 27-year-old Jonathan Jack Witcher, who has been on the police force for five years, is one of these eight men. He's a former laborer, and he joined the Metropolitan Police, which was then just eight years old, at 22 years old. He quickly builds a reputation as a detective who is able to solve, like, even what's considered the most unsolvable cases. He brings down a thief who stole multiple art pieces, um, 
including Leonardo da Vinci's Virgin and Child. He also tracks down the revolutionaries who tried to assassinate Napoleon III in 1858. Um, in 1859, he helps investigate the case of Reverend James Bonwell and his lover, Miss Lizzie Yorith, a clergyman's daughter, so super scandalous. They had an illegitimate baby and are accused of murdering that baby. So he becomes really well known um, and the most well known detective on the team, actually. The public love him and the public are fascinated by this new type of crime solving. Um, and so he becomes kind of famous in his own right. And they, and the public becomes obsessed with reading about investigations in the newspaper. So essentially every time we get asked, why is this, why is everyone so obsessed with true crime right now? And we always say, it's not new. This is proof of that. Everyone is obsessed with reading about all the details of these like sordid cases that the uh, detectives try to solve. And what year is it? This is 1850. Right now, it's like 1860-ish. So even Charles Dickens is fascinated by Witcher after he meets him. He describes him as uh, shorter and thicker set than the other officers and that he's marked with smallpox scars and that he has a, quote, reserved and thoughtful air as if he were engaged in deep arithmetical calculations, meaning he seems like he's always thinking about something. According to the article written by author Kate Summerscale, quote, the idea of detection quickly caught on amid the uncertainties of the mid 19th century. A detective offered science, conviction and stories that could organize chaos. In July 1860, now 45 year old Jack Witcher is at the height of his fame when he's asked to help investigate the murder of a three and a half year old boy from a middle class family in the village of Road. So it's a rural village. On June 30th, little Francis Savile Kent had been found. And so this is going to get, uh, I'm not going to get too graphic on this, but this is upsetting. He had been found murdered in an outside uh, toilet located on the grounds of the family home. And local police weren't making any progress on the case and Witcher's expertise is requested. He accepts the job and travels 100 miles away to the house on Road Hill in the small village of Road. He arrives on July 14th and immediately starts investigating the death of Little Savile. He finds that many people were living or working on in the Road Hill house at the time of the murder. So here's who lives there um, and works there. The father of the house is Samuel, and he had been married to his first wife, Mary Ann, and they had four kids together. Now, 29-year-old Mary Ann Alice, 28-year-old Elizabeth, and 16-year-old Constance, and 14-year-old William. So um, Mary Ann had died, and then Samuel had married a woman named Mary Drew, and they had children together. They had five-year-old Mary Amelia three-year, 10-month-old Savile, who was the victim, and one-year-old Evelyn. And there were three female employees at the location, nursemaid Elizabeth Goff, housemaid Sarah Cox, and cook um, Sarah Kerslake. And there were also three male groundskeeper that lived there. Now, Samuel, the head of the house, isn't well-liked in town. He's a factory inspector in charge of enforcing the 1833 Factory Act which according to the Encyclopedia Britannica restricted the working day in textile mills from 12 hours for persons aged 13 through 17 and eight hours for those aged nine to 12. So basically it's like laws against child labor uh, and children working long hours. 
So both employers and the employees hated Samuel for enforcing this act. Employers, obviously, because it cut into their bottom line by not having child labor um, and kids able to work long hours, but also because the workers weren't able to send their kids off to work long hours. And so they didn't have, make as much money. So everyone hated him. Samuel was so afraid of the townspeople that he erected like big walls and fences and a high gate around his property. And there's also lots of gossip about Samuel and his household in town. So Samuel and his first wife, Marianne, they um, had 10 children together between 1829 and 1845. Sadly, four of the children had died in infancy. And so Marianne had been really upset. According to medium, Mary Kent was diagnosed with weakness, bewilderment of intellect and various, though harmless, delusions. So due to these diagnoses, Samuel hired the woman, 24-year-old Mary Drew, to be the family's governess, which is basically like a tutor and to help raise the, the older children. So essentially, uh, Mary Drew raised the younger children, Constance and William, from birth. And then so Samuel's wife, Marianne, dies suddenly in 1852. And so Samuel marries the governess like 15 months later. So there's like a huge scandal. Everyone's like, were they... And like having an affair when Mary Drew was still alive. So the, the, he and his new wife, Marianne, have multiple children together, including little Savile. So now that he has some background info, Witcher speaks with everyone to get the full picture of what happened to Savile. He finds that on the evening of June 29th, the groundskeepers leave for the night. They lock up the tall gate as usual. Nursemaid Elizabeth puts Savile to bed around 8 p.m. as usual. Two hours later, the only person still awake in the house is the father, Samuel, before going to bed at 1130, he makes sure all the doors and windows are locked. The next morning around 5 a.m., Elizabeth, the nursemaid, realizes that little Savile isn't in his nursery. Um, his cot's empty and the sheets had been neatly folded. But she's not worried because sometimes um, the mother, Mary Drew, will take Savile into bed with her when he's crying at night. So she goes about her business at 7 a.m. She knocks on the parents' door to pick up Savile, but he isn't there. So they kind of freak out. Elizabeth checks with the other children to see if they've seen the little boy. Um, no one's seen him. And by 7.30, it was realized that he's nowhere to be found and everyone starts to panic. So Samuel, the father, orders one groundsman to get the village policeman. He orders his son, William, to get the local parish constable and his daughter, Constance, to get the local priest and the rest of the staff, he orders them to start looking um, around the grounds and he rides five miles to Trowbridge to get police superintendent, John Foley. So meanwhile, two local men by the name of Nutt and Benger, they arrive to try to help search for the missing boy and they find a small pool of blood outside the staff's outdoor toilet mm. um, in the garden. So yeah, trigger warning. The men like reach into the toilet and pull out a bundle. Um, it was Saville wrapped in a blood soaked blanket from his cot. Mm -hmm. I know he's still wearing his nightshirt. He had knife wounds and bruising around his mouth. Um, Benger carries Saville's body into the house. When the family doctor looked him over, he estimated the time of death to be around 3 a.m. And he believed the bruising around the boy's mouth meant he'd been smothered or suffocated prior to being stabbed. 
So Superintendent Foley arrives and looks over the property. They don't find anything suspicious. Immediately, the local police focus on the nursemaid, Elizabeth. And she was the last person to see Savile alive. She slept in the same room as him, but hadn't been awoken. Um, you know, if someone had come in, she maybe would have woken up. And it wasn't just police who had theories, of course, the locals did. It becomes huge news in the, in the town. Locals couldn't go anywhere without hearing conversations about his murder. Everyone knew about it. Everyone had their own theories. And most everyone agreed that Elizabeth, the nursemaid, was guilty. So cut to Witcher showing up. He um, doesn't believe that Elizabeth is guilty. And so once he shows up, the story gets, you know, huge all over the country because he's famous as well. So this guy, Wilkie Collins, who's the author of The Moonstone, which is known as the first modern English detective novel, describes the whole thing as detective fever. So hundreds of people write to Scotland Yard and newspapers with their theories of who the killer was. But again, the only person who doesn't think Elizabeth is guilty is also is Witcher, but also Mary Drew, the mother, doesn't think she did it either. Mm. But regardless, Elizabeth's arrested on June 10th. And when no further evidence is found, she's released. So there's no evidence against her. And there's really not a lot of evidence at all. So she's cleared. And so local police then bring in Jack Witcher. Right. Okay. Yeah, they need an expert from the city. Exactly. And they knew it. So once he has all the information, he agrees with Mary Drew that Elizabeth is not the killer. So everyone tries to convince Witcher that Elizabeth did it. And he's like, I'm, I'm a fucking detective. I will not be swayed <laughs> or whatever. Um, you know, he doesn't believe in gossip. Um, and so. God, I do. <laughs> I do too. I really love it. It's my religion. <laughs> but, he, but Witcher does think that someone, of course, living in the house is guilty. It's almost impossible that it's not someone from the house. And the person he hones in on is Samuel's 16-year-old daughter, Constance, who's Seville's half-sister. So he has multiple reasons why he thinks Constance is the murderer. So Constance's mother, Marianne, was mentally ill. Remember, she had passed away, which Witcher just immediately theorizes that Constance inherited her mental illness through genetics. So mm -hmm. that's just like his immediate reaction, which we know isn't great. And so back when Constance was 13... She ran away from home with her younger brother, William, who was 11 at the time. She cuts off her hair. She puts on boys clothing and she gathers up her brother. They head 30 miles northwest of road to the port city of Bristol. They were going to board a ship to leave the country like they were fucking 13 and 11 and out. They're out of there. <laughs> yeah. Also, sorry, but dressing like a boy at that time to go to run away is the smartest thing you could do. Yeah, it's the only way. It's very intelligent. Anyway. Yes, totally. So so um, they're found in a hotel in Bath and returned home. But here's the thing. When she had cut her hair and gotten rid of her clothes, she had gotten rid of them inside the same toilet or outdoor privy where Savile's body had been found. Oh, no. So that's, that's bad. Huge red flag. Mm -hmm. To me, that's the strongest evidence. Um, and then, as you just said, in addition to her physical strength, she had a, quote, strong enough mind to murder someone. So she was fucking smart and savvy. Mm -hmm. Not that that not that smart, savvy people murder people, but well, like tricky, maybe right. Maybe a little bit like, ooh, how did you think of that type of person? Totally. Like I could get away with something kind of thing. She also sleeps alone in her bedroom, meaning she could have killed him without anyone noticing she was not in her bed that night. 
And to top it off, her nightgown is missing from that night. Mm. And they're wondering if it's because she disposed of it because it was covered in blood. So Witcher doesn't know why Constance would kill her three-year-old half-brother, but it doesn't matter. You know, he tells the local magistrate what he suspects. They tell Witcher he can arrest her. Um, and he has seven days to figure out the motive while she's in jail um, or she'll be released. On July 20th, Constance is arrested crying, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, as she's dragged away from the Road Hill house. So Witcher tries to figure out the motive and find the elusive nightgown. And meanwhile, Samuel, the father, hires like a high powered attorney to defend Constance and she's released on bail. So after seven days, Witcher thinks he has a motive. But he never finds the nightgown. And it doesn't matter. Um, the motive is enough on July 27th. And in an inquiry into Constance, um, basically a grand jury, he tells the jury that Constance killed her brother because she was jealous that Saville was her dad's favorite child. And that basically, you know, the whole older sister thing, she got replaced by the new stepmom. The stepmom had basically raised her. And as soon as her mom was out of the picture... They just completely forgot about her, sent her to boarding school. But multiple people testify that Constance never spoke ill of her baby brother. And then Constance's attorney kind of goes on this like this like heartfelt plea saying there's not a tittle of evidence against her. This young lady has been dragged like a common felon, uh, more unjust, more a more unjust, a more improper, a more improbable case was never brought before any court of justice in any place. Uh, and the... It's very dramatic. It's a little overstated. Yeah. It's a little dramatic. Yeah. But it works. And the jury rules that there isn't enough evidence for Constance to go to trial. I so, mean, I agree with that. It yeah. can't just be like, you're jealous the end. And totally. You go to jail. That and seems like, fair. You, you hid something in the privy once. And yeah, you're smart. Yeah. You're smart. And your mom was crazy. Like, yeah, you can't. that's a lot. I think a lot of women have have <laughs> suffered because of all those. All of those reasons. Hi, me. I'm really smart. And my mom. No, my mom's not crazy. <laughs> um, so, okay. So at the time, it's this like Victorian society where women are these like delicate flowers. And there's this like kind of understanding that the middle class, like women can do no wrong. And like how and it's just like there's monsters out there. So which are accusing this like nice 16 year old middle class lady of murder makes and, and when the public finds out about it, they're totally outraged by it. In the public's mind, an accomplished, intelligent, upper class lady would never commit a murder, especially when this horrendous. So many felt that Witcher had violated the upper middle class home. So his fucking reputation is tarnished. Hmm. His main suspect that he was like, sure, did it is free. And so he kind of tucks his tail between his legs and goes back to London. Londoners no longer put the detective branch on a pedestal and the age of glorifying detectives for the time being is over. So um, there are now these anti-heroes who take things too far. So Witcher suffers a nervous breakdown and oh. retires from the force, citing, quote, congestion of the brain. Well, like me too, dude. Mm -hmm, same. So now that he's out of the picture, local police go back to pinning Savile's murder on nursemaid Elizabeth. So they're back to her. 
Luckily for her, they're unsuccessful. And after being arrested and released for a second time, Elizabeth finally quits working for the family. She's like, (laughs) hurry the shit. Goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye. One time I can forgive, but this is true bullshit. Roadhouse, the Road Hill House. Um, with no other suspects, the magistrate judge opens his own investigation of the murder. So remember Constance's missing nightgown? Mm-hmm. Well, the magistrate judge, Thomas Bush Saunders, it turns out he finds out that the, on the day of Savile's murder, police had actually found the nightgown hidden in the chimney that day. What? Mm-hmm. And no the, one's talking about it? Nope. The nightgown was, quote, dry, but very dirty. It had some blood on it. End Mm -hmm. quote. The officer who found it told Superintendent Fowley, but he dismissed it as evidence, saying it's probably menstrual menstrual blood and had been, quote, hidden out of shame. But yeah, (laughs) why would you? So that's that then your guess is now fact. Yeah. And also like maybe not telling this. I think they resented this big time detective coming in from London. And so maybe they were just like, it's not evidence. Don't worry about it. He's just going to pin it on. Like maybe they were defending Constance because they also had these preconceived notions about upper middle class 16 year olds. Yeah. So they were like, forget it. It's going to (laughs) mislead. It's an odd hill to die on. The 16 year olds of the upper class. Yeah. But also just like then knowing that that's he had a whole the witcher had a whole theory. He had the like this one cop had the evidence, but it was just kind of like, no, that's okay. Yeah. I mean, it can't be the first time someone's fucking hidden evidence to because they think someone's not over the like incoming guy. Right. Yep. So, so the nightgown revelation, though, doesn't really lead anywhere at this point. I feel like the investigation is kind of over. It fizzles out. In 1861, the Kent family moves to Wales. Constance is sent to finishing school and her younger brother, William, sent to boarding school. So in 1863, 19-year-old Constance leaves finishing school and moves to St. Mary's, a house for religious ladies in Brighton. So while she's there at St. Mary's, she confesses to Savile's murder. Constance, the half-sister. Oh. Remember her? Yep. From just a minute ago? Never forgot her. Remember that upper middle class 16-year-old who couldn't hurt a fly? Shit. She tells the principal of St. Mary's named Arthur Wagner that she waited until the family and staff were asleep before she took Savile from his room. She wrapped him in a blanket, left the house, and killed him with her father's razor in the outdoor toilet. Oh. I know. But she never gives a motive. On April 25th, 1865, 25-year-old Constance enters London's Bow Street Magistrate's Court and hands in a handwritten confession that reads, quote, I, Constance Emily Kent, alone and unaided on the night of the 29th of June, 1860, murdered at Roadhill House, one Savile Kent. Before the deed, none knew of my intention, nor after of my guilt. No one assisted me in the crime, nor in my invasion of discovery. And Constance pleads guilty and is sentenced to death. Whoa. Even with her confession, many people still think Constance is innocent. Innocent Constance is innocence. <laughs> Many people still think Constance is innocent. Believe so. People think it's her father who killed his son, and that um, Samuel, a known adulterer, was sleeping with the nursemaid, and that maybe Constance is covering for them. 
So a lot of people also think that maybe Saville, this three-year, 10-month-old, interrupted his father's affair with the nursemaid Elizabeth. Like they were hooking up this three, three-year, 10-month-old saw it. And to keep him quiet, they killed him, which is like the Ridic. most absurd. Like yeah, a no three way. and a half-year-old is not going to be like at the breakfast table fucking saying what he saw. Also, it's just so extreme to yeah. kill a child that like it's, yeah, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, exactly. So there's all these these fucking stupid theories like that. So in 2008, author Kate Summerscale releases a book called The Suspicion of Mr. Witcher. And she has a new theory um, that Constance's younger brother, William, was the actual killer. And Constance was covering for him with her confession. But also, if William wasn't the killer, he at least aided his big sister, Constance, and Kate actually found while she was researching the book that Witcher did think that Witcher actually thought that William was involved as well as an accomplice, but mm. kind of kept it to himself um, or that he was at least a confidant and like knew what his sister had done. Either way, um, Summerscale believes that the motive was revenge against Samuel, who favored the children he had with his second wife mm. um, and that of those kids, Saville was his favorite. I mean, classic story. It's like sad but uh, true you know yes yeah so now back to the 1800s luckily for constance queen victoria saves her from being hanged and instead of a death sentence constance serves 20 years in prison she's released in july of 1885 at 41 years old i know wow the next year she moves to australia she starts with a new identity of course and there she becomes a nurse. She works with a leper colony and a home for young offenders. And she dies in 1944 at 100 years old. Whoa. I know. So she kind of was, at least she did have a conscience. And she was basically like, this is what I'll do to make up for this horrible thing I did. I mean, we can only guess, but it sounds like becoming a nurse and working at a leper colony is a little bit of like redemption on her yeah. part, right? Absolutely. Yeah. That's some service to the Lord if I've ever heard about it. Right. I mean, seems like. Yeah, for sure. So what about Detective Jack Witcher? You just asked me in your <laughs> mind, probably. Well, after Constance confesses to killing her brother, of course, he's totally vind vindicated because he was fucking right all along, even yep. though he had been lambasted in the fucking public and in the papers. So now his reputation as a genius crime solver is restored and he becomes the assistant superintendent of police. And he goes back? He goes back, baby! And like even better than before! <laughs> you know? Does he go back and as he walks in the office just starts screaming, I fucking told you. <laughs> I told you. It, he, everyone at the uh, gets an in your face with her, by him. In just your walking face. right up to people yeah. and just screaming it in their face. In your face, in your face. And he in slams face. his office doors twice in a row. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that would be because the fact that he had a nervous breakdown from yeah. it was like that his world ended. Yeah. And it probably wasn't even that easy it's not like he was like this is great i'm loving saying that your daughter killed right. her, her half brother like it's all he's just doing it to solve the crime yeah and he like knew it because he was so good at what he did and yep. everyone's like you're full of shit you're wrong and How he dare had been you. like fucking charles dickens like was his fan like he had been how high the mighty fall and all that shit yes. right yeah truly yep. so he yeah so he becomes the assistant superintendent of police and in 1881, after a 40 plus year career in law enforcement, he dies at the age of 67. 
Wow. Yeah. So he fucking, he's the comeback kid. But his legacy doesn't die with him. He's the inspiration for early detective novels and psychological thrillers. In Charles Dickens' 1853 novel, Bleak House, which the insight... A are- classic. A cl- I, I, I want to talk about Do all it. these. Well, just because there's a bleak... There's a version of Bleak House. There's many. If yeah. you go on to like Amazon Prime, there's many. But Gillian Anderson stars in one of the more recent Bleak Houses, mm-hmm. and it is so good. I think I've watched it five times. <gasps> it is so well made. Okay. It is so... It is so like... It's such good TV and it's a series. So I think there's like oh. eight episodes or something. Be- it's beautifully made. I'm sure it's from the BBC. Okay. It's one of my favorite, like of my, of the period piece series. It's Damn. one of the best ones. Yeah. I mean, that's some Karen Kilgariff fucking, uh, what's it called right there? And then I have a surprise one for you at the end okay. that goes along with this. I love surprises. Uh, <laughs> So it's like the so basically Encyclopedia Britannica says it's the first important detective novel in English literature. Mm. Um, And there's a featured character based on Witcher named Inspector Bucket. Yep. Yeah. So that's that's fucking Stephen Ray. Stephen Ray plays Inspector Bucket in the bleak house that I'm talking about. And he's great. That's crazy. That's based on Jack Witcher. Hey. And even today, Witcher's legacy is one of the first great detectives, and that lives on. In 2008, Kate Summerscale wrote The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher, and a TV series based on the book was released three years later. That was my surprise. Shut your face! That was my surprise. When you first started telling this one, I was like, oh my god, this is The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher. Oh my god! Patty Considine is the star, and it is so good. I think there's only four of them, though. What? and Olivia Coleman stars in one of them, not this one, but like the fourth one. I think it is such a good, it's again, period piece. Yes. But really, like, if hey. you want to know more about Mr. Richard, this is the TV show for you. Connoisseur is the word I was thinking of, is what you are. And if That's what you're it- fucking saying these are the best, then these are the fucking best people. Here's some of the things I love. <laughs> I love period pieces. I love Victorian England. Yeah. I love m- crimes and mysteries. Yeah. All of those tea. things take place High in tea. the suspicions of... <laughs> I love what? High tea. I love tea. I'm drinking some PG tips right now. Are you really? I am. Dude. And I love Patty Considine. So That's I, wild. I can't recommend this series more. But Bleak House, I think Bleak House number one. Okay. Suspicions of Mr. Witcher, a close to. Okay, great. Um, but also, I'm going to end this by telling you that Witcher did more than just inspire books and TV shows. Um, his protege was Frank Williamson, who would go on to establish the criminal investigation department and lead the search for Jack the Ripper. So it Whoa. goes all the way to the fucking top, baby. It all goes all the way to the top. Although, gotta say, Mr. Williamson didn't do the best job. I'm gonna go ahead and agree that he actually didn't solve it. So it's not that great of a fucking legacy. Hey, we can't all be, we can't all be a Mr. Witcher. We can't all be problem solvers. Yeah. Um, so that is the story of Jack Witcher, the Prince of Detectives, and the case that completely changed his life, the Road Hill House murder. Amazing. Whew, thank you. Oh, I loved that one. That's like you telling me one of my favorite TV shows. I know. When you first started saying it, I was like, I could see it really clearly in my mind. And then I was like, hold on a second. Ah! I feel like I've I stole that one out from under you a little bit. Well, but no, that's better because... Also, there's four other ones. If you want to watch them, you can pick other ones, too, because there's some real 
it's like it's and it's really fascinating how they had so little to go on back then yeah. in terms of like, you know, forensics, in terms of actually getting hard evidence, all that stuff. Right. You had to be basically a Sherlock Holmes type to put stuff together and be like, wait, you said this on that yeah. day or whatever. And to put As stuff a- together and also pick other things apart because there's so many red herrings. Like in this story, there's so many little things that don't have anything to do with the case, but you have to look into it and decide what what's either just happens to, you know, just has nothing to do with the case at all. What's something that the murderer maybe was trying to do to mislead you? What's, you know, what actually is part of the, you know, the investigation? Yeah. And like, and for this one, the class system that dictated how people, what people assumed about people's right, lives, where right. the public was like, there's no way a 16-year-old rich girl could do anything like this. Right. So just take that off the table. How where dare it's like, you? Yeah. You lose and your like, reputation because of that. You lose everything. You'd have a nervous breakdown because of it, where it's like, no, that guy was actually seeing really clearly. Yeah. But also, like, every step of the way, I just kept noticing, like, people would, like, they had to, like, turn people away from the trial, like, the trials Every pub, everyone was speculating. You couldn't go anywhere without hearing this story. Everyone knew about it. And it's like, yeah, people have been murderinos and into true crime for fucking forever. It's not new. No, no, no. It's it's not new. And it's also a combination of every, you know, we're joking about loving gossip. Everyone does. Everyone wants to know the thing that isn't known. Everyone wants to know a secret, to hear a forbidden thing or a thing that like brace yourself. You won't be able to handle this. It's like it is so upsetting to think a a child murdered and then put into a privy. That That is is terrible. It's it's so extreme that then you're having people react to that information. Yeah. A girl like that could never do it. Blah, blah, blah. Like Like the depravity of it. It has to be. It has to be someone that is obvious. It can't be, you know, who would do such a thing? Not this person. Oh, my God. You know, it's- which actually, sorry, but it reminds me uh, in the because I was rewatching Des just to see if there was anything I missed or whatever. Mm-hmm. And apparently when the when the um, in, when the police went down to his place of work mm-hmm. to go like investigate his to see if they could find anything there or would mm-hmm. talk to people they wouldn't let the police in because they did not believe he could do anything like that always and it was just another one of those things of like monsters in plain sight yeah. monsters right there in front of you but if they're quiet and shy and kindly yeah in the day-to-day then people will swear up and down that there's no way they could do a thing like that yeah see this is why i suspect every single person in my life just it's health a healthy suspicion yeah like the suspicions of mr witcher right and then you'll Please. be pleasantly surprised at the end of the at the end of life that nobody you suspected yes was yeah exactly like, oh that's nice i oh. that, i was the asshole no one else was great <laughs> that's much better i'd rather be the asshole than my like my, than my best friend's sister be the murderer you know what i mean Yes, exactly. Let me be paranoid right. instead of you be guilty. Right. In that episode, I just want to double check. Yeah. But I believe that your friend. Uh oh. Um, not are they Targaryens? Who are who are the um? Oh, not the Starks. Lannister. The okay, you know the Lannister dad that finally shows up. Charles Dance is his name. Yeah. And he's like the one that bosses everyone around. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I'm there with you. He plays the dad <gasps> in the Mr. Witcher episode where he's the dad everyone hates. Oh, from wow. Ro- from Roadhill House. Oh, I could see. He's a dick dad. He's good at that role. Yep. He's a, he's a British. I also think he might be in Bleak House. He what is. The he's the fa- I'm not kidding. He's the lawyer in Bleak House. And this is why I love British television. Yeah. There's about 30 people that are yes. in every single thing and they're all the best actors you've ever seen. Can I tell you something that reminds me? Go, I'm going to go back to our Halloween party. I'm going to call back to our Halloween party. We're doing the beginning of the show at the end. Now. We just needed a little time to warm up. Because it was so sad in the beginning with George. We just needed to warm up. Oh, it's okay. baby. Um, Okay, Kurt Braunoller and Lauren Cook. Kurt Braunoller from the <laughs> podcast Bananas and Bananas Lauren Cook. Bananas Boyd, number one. Amazing. And uh, his wife, star of NCIS. I was talking to her about that. That's right, she's <laughs> on NCIS. It's the it's the best. She's I like, it's really cool to try to be an actress for 20 years and then finally have it kick in. I know. It's, it's so awesome. I'm so stoked for her. I know. Um, so they came. <laughs> Lauren was Jon Snow <laughs> and Kurt was the Queen of Dragons. She, uh, Mother of Dragons. Daenerys. 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 Which was a spoiler for me. <laughs> Because I didn't know they hooked up. Oh, yeah. I was like, who are you guys? And she seemed really offended that I couldn't tell. But then I was like, well, I didn't know because I didn't know they ever even met. Like, of course they do. But also, Lauren is a blonde who has... I actually yes. had a picture of her hair on my phone for a while to oh, show a hairdresser of like, this is the goal we're trying yes. to get to because she has such good hair. But she had it up in this hilarious Jon Snow brown curly wig. And then she had a knitted beard on yes. her face. And then Kurt. So Lauren's like my height and Kurt's like Vince's height. So Vin, Kurt's like a six, four fucking uh, queen of mother of dragons. Yes. <laughs> Lauren is this little John <laughs> Snow. Little John Snow. <laughs> but I was like, oh, they hook up. I'm and, like, it made me want to watch more. And then they're, <laughs> and then they have two kids, Lauren and Kurt, and they dress them up as dragons. Did they really? For Halloween and what trick or treat. <laughs> Oh, is that the cutest thing you've ever I seen? I love that. Usually you see parents that they dress up around the kids. Right. But they're like, no, no, you're going to be in our thing. <laughs> you're a motherfucking dragon. <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. So that I love made it. me think of that. So that was a spoiler Halloween costume, but it made me want to keep watching because I'll watch them hook up. Shit. Is that sexy? Yeah, but it Do comes- they hook up? It's it's later and you, the phrase hookup is, you Vague. know, it's like you have to see, but the, it's good. Okay. You should definitely see it. All right. And then once you do, please tell me so I can send you one of my favorite memes that okay. I've ever seen. Okay. Uh, but that's all like later. Yeah. Okay. It's later, worth it for a meme. I'll do anything for a good meme. I really love <laughs> because it. Because it means you get it. It right? means you it get means it. you've consumed enough pop culture. Yes. Whatever that you get the meme. Yes. A hundred percent. The goal of all of life. And then you go, oh, the internet's that not that bad. If it's <laughs> smart, then, if it's smart people like this. And then, <sighs> and then you look over and do better right, right. out of the corner of your eye. You right. And then better. the news, then you, then you read the news instead of memes and you're like, why did I do that? It's rough. It is rough. But we're keeping this on a positive note at the Guys, end. That went. Like my story, of course, took mm-hmm. us way down. Mm-hmm. And then there was a, like a ticking roller coaster up, up, up with Mr. Witcher. Yeah. And I think and then the it baby. delivered us. Yeah. It, it delivers us right out of the pit of despair. Should I mean, it's sh- sad. <laughs> the pit of despair. 
Should we do a, a fucking hooray just to like bring it to the top and like absolutely end it on a the highest of highs? Yes. All right, let's do a couple fucking hoorays. Let's do it. Do you want me to go first? Sure. I like this one. This was from Twitter from um, Day Lily. Her handle is at Day Lily two three four, and she said, "Had to share my fucking hooray is that after many years of inactivity, I've started walking every day. <gasps> my town." Right. I know. Yes. I my need town that. has. I, I know. It's good. To, I love hearing stuff like that. Yes. My town has beautiful trails and lots of. Yep. You guessed it. Bogs. And then <gasps> there's like a the the my favorite emoji, which is the one where they're gritting their teeth like. Ooh. Yeah. Ee. And then they wrote, I was walking the bog listening to the pod when I heard your episode of Bog Bodies. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love that because it's such the little things that make a huge difference. And I fucking need that in my life. And it's so hard for me to like get it started, even though I know like mentally it it's it's so needed. And it's all it is is that little step of like actually putting your shoes on. So daily two, three, four, you're our hero. You're kicking ass. You're inspiring both of us. I'm going to emulate you, except not except not with bogs, but with city fucking pollution and traffic okay i'm gonna walk until i find a bog that's my commitment (laughs) and we never saw karen again (laughs) okay this one's from our email um says i'm drinking bubbly out of the waterford crystal toasting flutes from my wedding to celebrate my first year of not having to be married anymore (laughs) to someone who cheated and lied and emotionally abused me Of course, while wearing my fuck you, I'm divorced pants. Hey, (laughs) I got a job using my degree after being a stay at home mom of four for 10 years and went through a nasty divorce all during the pandemic. And by the way, there's a lot of exclamation marks in here. So I think they're like, really, it's positive. Stoked. I am proud of how far I've come and I'm so excited to see what life brings me next. So cheers. Stay sexy and don't marry a douche canoe. L. 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 Amazing. Proud of you. Bust out that Waterford crystal. Fuck yeah. And then sell those things on fucking eBay. <laughs> For you, that's your little, uh, yeah, you could, that's your nest egg. Yeah. Go get a facial after you sell those fucking glasses you don't need. You raised four kids Ugh. and now you're doing it. It's Waterford crystal style. Yes. Hell yes. Yes. I love it. Well, here, this, them, thematically, this goes along with this. Okay. This is uh, from the fan cult forum, and it says, Hi, I adore you. Let's get to it. I've been a stay-at-home quarantine mom for what seems like 75 years. <laughs> so just uh, BT dubs, we haven't done these in a while. So yeah. if you sent this last fall or something, like, you know, that's what we're reading. Right. Um, but anyway, I've been a stay-at-home quarantine mom for what seems like 75 years, and my husband is a healthcare worker going uh, doing 60-plus hour weeks. Mm. And then in parentheses, because fuck COVID. Again, we may not be banging pots and pans anymore because we're all pretending that quarantine's over, but healthcare workers are still overwhelmed and getting it from all sides. So uh, do what you can for your healthcare workers, please. We're both at the end of our sanity at this point. Get fucking vaxxed and wear a mask. (laughs) There's lots of parentheticals in this email. Um, But I have convinced him to listen to MFM during his one and a half hour commutes to to escape his hellish job. And not only have you provided him a a distraction, but now we have a new shared obsession and he's a proud murderino. 
instead of just being overtired assholes, we're now overtired assholes that can talk shit for hours over whichever episodes he binged today. I've even caught him stealing my fan cult gear and wearing it with pride. Stay saved and do God's mission or sunset or some such crap. XOXO Maria. And the subject line of that email was fucking hooray. You saved my marriage. Oh, yeah. I'm going to take well, we'll take full credit for that. Full for cred. Sure. For full cred. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're welcome. Yeah. Oh, God. Can you imagine having to be in, in the medical field and work 60 hours a week and fucking drive an hour and a half each oh, way? God. It's just Fuck. it's so much for people to deal with. It is just <sighs> ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And like no one and they're not doing the thing that would make it at least a little bit better, which is to get fucking. Why is it an argument to get vaccinated? Yes, Just get fucking vaccinated and maybe yes. you won't fucking die and overwhelm the healthcare system. Like, come on. One of my favorite uh, comedians and people on Twitter is a comic named Robert Yasamora. And he tweeted today, liberty is also fucking responsibility. Ooh. Like you don't just do li- I have liberty f- Fuck right. The world. It's like no, that now you're part of the social fabric. You selfish piece of shit. But go that. ahead and have your mental illness publicly. Whatever. <laughs> your breakdown Whoops. on fucking too strong. No, too strong a statement. It's important. I'm thinking of these people because you see all these articles. People are so rude now. Everyone's so blah blah blah. Yeah. Well, a lot of them have to commute an hour and a half to go to a place where then they have to fight with people. Yeah. Who won't wear a mask or who. Who don't believe in their deathbed look up at them and say, I was told this was a hoax. Right. Imagine how horrifying that is. Uh, So fucked up. So, all right. I got one more. Okay. Uh, this is from Brit Mags on the fan cult forum, I think. Yeah. On the fan cult forum. It's all Brit Mags. Brit Mags. What's up? My fucking hooray is that right before the start of COVID, I decided to chase my dreams and was accepted to the master beekeeping program at my local college. Uh Uh-oh, Georgia. (laughs) Moving there. (laughs) Then COVID hit, and despite homeschooling my three small children in a language I don't speak, I finished my first year with a 98%. Whoa, wait. Where where are they going to school? I have no idea. I have no idea of the details. Maybe Maybe English is in her first language. Maybe they're living abroad. I don't know. But wow, this is a compelling what I can't I can barely watch TV (laughs) in my native tongue. It's too difficult sometimes. That's right. If if we left in all the words we got wrong during this podcast that Stephen is now editing out, we would not. We would literally would sound like it wasn't our native fucking tongue. Um, Then it said yesterday I received my acceptance letter for year two of the program. Thank you for giving me the courage to chase my dreams and giving me a safe space to feel proud of myself. Yes. Yay, Brit Mags. Fucking beekeeping. Brit Mags killing it in the international beekeeping <laughs> industry. <laughs> what? what? Platform. Industry. What's the word? Industry? industry? I don't know. Study uh, program. Study program. International study abroad beekeeping what if Magistrate. when she says it wasn't in a language that she speaks, she means the language of the bees? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 she no. Knows. She taught she her children. She homeschooled her kids in mm. bee speak. They all have like a very light yellow fur on their face. 
My, did I read that right? In the homeschooling my three children in language I don't speak, I finished my first year in No, that's right. Yes. Good for her. Amazing. Hope. Hope and dreams and excitement and like, let's fucking a build a better connection. world. Connection. Yes. Let's support each other. Let's let's give people a break. Let's also uh, band together. Let's try yeah. to make people feel less lonely so they don't have to go to weird websites and <laughs> fill their heads with terrible things. Yeah. Let's bring them to Mr. Witcher's house. Let's bring them to Bleak House. Let's yes. bring them to the Charles Dickens. Yes. Catalog. Let's read a fucking so Game stuff. of Thrones. Yes. Let's make a better world for for she, him, they, them, there. Like, let's fucking do this. We can do All it. it. No reason not to. That's nope. what is what we're, we're kind of here to do, everybody. Yeah. Yep. I mean, and we're doing it through true crime. It doesn't make sense. We know that. We know that. Podcasts are supposed to be rev- funny and fun and quick and just like get you out of your head. But Karen Not and this I one. are fucking no way. taking it to the streets. Bitch. We're doing it backwards and we're doing it against the odds. <laughs> and without proper understanding of the English fucking language because we dropped out of college. Both of we us. We can't pronounce your town in England. It's going to be a bloodbath. It's, we blame it on you. Yes, we do. That's right. That's right. That's our guarantee to you. Zoom high five, Georgia. That was a great episode. Zoom high five, Karen. Boom. Uh, Stephen, thank you once again. Yep. Let's all stay sexy. And let's all don't get murdered. Goodbye. Elvis, do you want a cookie? This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Hannah Kyle Crichton. Associate producer, Alejandra Keck. Engineer and mixer, Stephen Ray Morris. Researchers, Jay Elias and Haley Gray. Send us your hometowns and your fucking hoorays at myfavoritemurder at gmail.com. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at myfavoritemurder and Twitter at myfavemurder. And for more information about this podcast, our live shows, merch, or to join the fan cult, go to myfavoritemurder.com. Rate, review, and subscribe.